Welcome to the Skift Podcast, weekly conversations on global travel trend lines. Roller coasters, thrill rides, and life-sized cartoon characters might seem like child's play, but theme parks are serious business. According to an outlook from the International Association of Amusement Parks and Attractions, global theme park spending reached nearly $40 billion in 2014, and worldwide attendance topped $950 million. North American companies are finding new audiences in burgeoning markets like China, and operators overseas are building their own destination parks, even as top players in Orlando and California keep upping their game. On today's episode of the Skift Podcast, we're talking about the business of theme parks, how they're trying to reach broader audiences, use technology to personalize visits, and raise the bar in the park experience as they raise prices. Joining us by Skype from Pasadena is Robert Niles, founder and editor of the website Theme Park Insider. In the studio with us is Martin Lewison, a professor of management at Farmingdale State College in New York who studies the theme park industry. There with me, editor and podcast host Hannah Sampson and reporter Dan Peltier. Thanks guys so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Um, so so just both of you, um, Robert, you can start. Can you just okay. give me your background? Um, how did you come to the enviable position of uh, making theme parks your career? Well, I mean, I've been a theme park fan since I was a little kid. I visited Disneyland for the first time, well, before I even can remember going to Disneyland. But I walked, I worked at the Walt Disney World Resort when I was in college and for a year between college and graduate school. So that kind of planted the seed for what I ended up doing. But uh, in the late 1990s, I was working as a web editor for a major newspaper. And I decided I wanted to just keep making websites. So um, I knew that there were a lot of fans of theme parks out there. I knew a lot. I knew that I knew a lot about theme parks having worked at Disney. So uh, I started a site that eventually grew into themeparkinsider.com. Cool. Martin, what about you? Uh, well, I grew up in this area and uh, grew up going to places like Palisades Park and Rye Playland and Coney Island um, and uh, getting to go to Great Adventure, uh, which is now Six Flags in New Jersey um, pretty soon after that opened. And I was also lucky enough to go to Walt Disney World and this, uh, you know, to Magic Kingdom went soon after it opened in the 70s and Epcot soon after it opened in the early 80s. Um, and then I've kind of enjoyed theme parks at, at various levels of intensity over the course of my life. And I had a girlfriend in graduate school where I went to the University of Pittsburgh and she was all about Kennywood, which is the local <laughs> theme park in mm. Pittsburgh and uh, and Disney also. So uh, she kind of got me into it again. I started joining uh, American Coaster Enthusiasts and other clubs. Um, I eventually became a business management professor. And um, one of the great things about academia, besides the extraordinarily high salaries, is that you can sort of pick and choose your area of interest. And uh, that's where it led me. So to kind of uh, jump off of that. Let's talk about how the theme park experience has changed um, in recent years. And I guess let's consider, say, a 30-something uh, with kids who may be going back for the first time since they visited um, as children. And how is that experience going to be different versus when they went 20, 25 years ago, say? It really depends on where you're going. Uh, if you're going to one of the big Orlando parks, such as Walt Disney World or uh, Universal Orlando, I think what you're going to find is just 
far, far more choices than you might have had a generation ago. There's been a lot of uh, um, segment, uh, you know, uh, various new segments within the marketplace, a lot of upcharging, a lot of differences in ticket packages, a lot more hotel options, a lot of advanced reservation options that weren't there before. It's no longer as simple as just showing up in the morning, buying your ticket at the front gate and going in. A lot of advanced planning is necessary to really get the full value out of a theme park vacation. Now, if you're going to a regional park, it's not as complicated as it is visiting Orlando, but you're going to find a lot of differences. I mean, uh, coaster technology has advanced amazingly over the past uh, decade or so. We're now seeing these steel wooden hybrids that have become kind of the rage in, in, in uh, roller coasters. And even uh, regional parks are beginning to get into Disney-style rides. Uh, Six Flags has a relatively new attraction called uh, Justice League Battle for Metropolis that is um, in terms of technology and the experience, every bit as good as something that you would see at a Disney or Universal theme park. So there's just a lot more there for people than um, the parks were offering a generation ago. Um, Martin, yeah, wait, wait on that. But also, um, if you could, if you could touch on as well, uh, just how we've seen just the pricing or the cost of going to the theme park change over the last several years and. Um, you know, and, and how attainable that is now. Well, I think, uh, I mean, to add to what um, Robert already said, um, there are more ticket kind of packages and prices now. In the past, you would buy either a season pass or a day pass, and that was it. Now, for example, the, reg the big regional chains have, um, in fact, this is the article I wrote for Theme Park Insider. Um, now they have, you can actually get your season pass financed. So you can get your whole season pass for the whole family um, by putting down a relatively small down payment. Of course, you're on the hook for the for a year uh, of making payments, but that wasn't uh, available in the past. Um, as you said, there's also more upcharge attractions that weren't available. Um, another big innovation since 30 years ago would be the Q pass or the Q product. Um, it used to be... Um, sort of unthinkable that you could actually pay to jump to skip the line and now there not only are there products to skip the line but there are there is a tier of products to skip the line so it depends on how, how long do you want to wait in line and if you don't want to wait in line at all well we've got a price point for that also or or if you're going to disney the fast pass which is free but takes like some definite advanced planning work the Walt Disney World Fast Pass, the, the Fast Pass Plus, is definitely something that I—that's a nut that I haven't cracked yet. I, I still find it <laughs> extremely confusing. Um, I try, I try my hardest, but uh, I unfortunately I don't get down there enough to really learn it. But I, I read about it a lot and and do a lot of dreaming. <laughs> Robert, the uh, talking about all of these different pricing tiers and different upcharges. Um, you've got a big community of readers. And I wonder if you ever hear when when prices are raised or when something new is introduced that there's like a threshold that makes the theme park experience unattainable for families or just or just kind of makes them say, you know what, I, I got to do something else. I can't do this anymore. Yeah, I'm, uh, definitely we have passed some thresholds already. Uh, there are some people who might have gone to the Disney World parks, say, on a yearly basis, who have now cut down to every few years, or maybe they're substituting a visit to something like Busch Gardens Williamsburg or Cedar Point in Sandusky, Ohio, instead of going to Disney World. 
so there is a lot of product substitution that's happening um, within the parks themselves. Um, uh, there's a lot of grumbling, but ultimately when you look at it, you know, Disney World's attendance has been you know, going up and up and up. I think w- this past year we're, we're finally seeing a little bit of softening happening there. Um, but even on the West Coast at Disneyland, um, you know, the attendance has remained relatively strong. Universal's done very well with Harry Potter. Uh, so they're discovering that they can be pretty aggressive with what they're doing, and the Potter fans will still come out for that. Um, but yeah, definitely, we've passed some thresholds. People have substituted things. Uh, people have changed what they've had to do. And I think Disney's also tried to reach out to, let's say, a more affluent market that maybe they ne- didn't necessarily get before. I mean, they've been going after the luxury vacation market that I think 20 years ago never would have considered a trip to Disney World. That would have been you know, way too you know, middle class for them. But now it's considered a legit luxury travel destination in, uh, by, by many consumers. And so they've had to change their marketing focus uh, to go after a different market to replace the one that they might have left behind with some of the aggressive price increases they've done. That's interesting. And, and I know we see them... Um they already had hotels, at least on property in Orlando, that, you know, I don't I don't know what some of those the Grand Floridian get can top out at a night, but you've got some over the water like bungalows at the Polynesian wow. now. Um, it seems like they're really building for that very affluent traveler who can drop nine hundred bucks a night on luxury suite. Well- there's the there's a four seasons at Walt Disney World now. I mean, that pretty much tells you what you need to know. Right. Um, I want to stick to the pricing topic for a minute because, Martin, you've talked about this and you talked to me about this, um, that it, there's not really a way to just say, okay, I know that going to a theme park is going to cost me $75 no matter when I go. Regardless of which parks we're talking about, um, I think they've all kind of moved into this um, differentiated pricing, even if it's not completely dynamic. How can you talk a little bit about the direction that uh, a lot of operators are going and do you see them moving all the way toward, you know, truly airline style pricing models? That, that's a great question. And I, I've been critical of the industry for being slow and dragging their feet. And the truth is, I think industry, the industry as a whole remains fairly conservative. Uh, I mean, hotels have been charging higher prices during peak times and and low prices during soft times since the beginning of time, I would imagine. But the theme park industry has traditionally posted a price at the beginning of the season, and it's remained that price pretty much for the whole season. You, you do see some of the, again, the larger chains, Six Flags and Cedar Fair are starting to realize, oh, this weekend, uh, weekends are busier than the weekday, which seems su- such a no-brainer, but they're, they've only really just started to do that. And to be honest, while I see a future, I probably, I mean, I think they wait for Disney because Disney can kind of pave the way and then they look and see how can we copy Disney like they've done for all kinds of things. So Disney, now that Disney has added the tiered pricing based on the calendar, these are our peak weeks and months. These are our middle and soft months and weeks. And we're going to adjust our one-day ticket pricing that way. And I would imagine that Disney's going to maybe move that over not only to their one-day tickets, but also to their their multi-day tickets, I would imagine. But I still see extraordinary ham-handedness 
on the and lack of sophistication even in the other big chains i was looking at a six flags whose name i won't mention and they had a pick any day ticket that was cheaper than choose a specific day ticket which makes no sense but that's the kind of thing i find in fact i even out of the goodness of my heart, sent an email to the general manager. Uh, within 24 hours, it had changed, but I, I didn't even get a thank you. <laughs> or a free ticket. Oh, boy. Well, shifting gears from that, you know, we've heard some really big news this year. Um, you know, very exciting with Disney's expansion into Shanghai in China with this giant new theme park and, and something that's mind-boggling to me and probably a lot of others. There's something like 300 million people that live within, I think, a three-hour drive of that park that Disney's really, you know, honing in on and, and really planning um, you know, it's, it's strategy around that gigantic market. So I think that's, that's crazy in itself. Um, but we also have universal that's looking to expand, um, into China, um, and Beijing. So obviously China is really growing and everyone wants to be there. Um, but why is it so crucial that a theme park, um, you know, go after a market like China right now? I mean, that's where the growth is in the global tourism segment at this point. That's, um, you know, the American market is pretty mature at this stage. Uh, but I think a lot of people see a lot of opportunity in China that they might be able to get um, for a little bit marginally less expensive than it is to try and uh, grow a market in a, a, a mature market like America. Um so you, you, know, you talked about that population, all that's there, uh, the growing middle class. The challenge, though, is really to try and find the right price points in China. I think uh, the initial reports out of Shanghai Disneyland have been a little bit softer than perhaps Disney was looking for. And I think one of the issues there is they don't really have the right uh, price differentiation. They don't have the, the right number of price point levels there for the marketplace. Uh, there's extraordinary wealth in China. But there's also a lot of people who you know, would like to have a day at Disneyland who can't afford the prices even at Shanghai's version of it at this stage. So Disney needs to uh, do a little bit of adjustment and try and create some various price points there that can bring some more people into the park, increase revenue, uh, while still meeting the company's goals for growth. And uh, that's a, I mean, they just started. So yeah, I'll cut them a little bit of slack. But uh, this isn't as easy as maybe some analysts thought it would be. Okay. Do do we have a timeline, I guess, looking at maybe when Disney started off in the U.S., you know, several decades ago, you know, how long you think it will take Disney to figure out what works best for pricing um, in mainland China? Well, I mean, Disney's got all these years of experience of modeling and research in not just the United States, but in Europe and Japan as well. So uh, it's not like the early days of Disneyland where you had you know a couple of guys in a back trailer with some pencils and clean sheets of paper trying to figure stuff out. Uh, they've got some pretty sophisticated tools and uh, quite a bit of consumer analysis of the Chinese market and all their other operations, films, television, everything else that they do uh, in the Disney company. So I think they'll figure it out relatively quickly, but it's still going to take them a couple of years. Uh, they've still got some expansions planned for that park as well. Uh, so this is really not just the beginning of a park opening up in full form, but really a ramp-up period that's going to take them a few years before they get to uh, full optimized operations there. Okay. Even Disneyland in California was seen as a flop when it first opened. 
And mm-hmm. it, it took a few months, at least for, you know, before it really caught on. Right. And then I guess looking at other uh, challenges, you know, in translating a Western theme park experience to other parts of the world, say elsewhere in Asia or the Middle East. Um, I know Dubai has some pretty ambitious plans um, for theme parks. Um, Martin, does anything come to mind? When You know, I uh, a friend of mine who's working on the Motion Gate project, he was saying they that's, were... That's the Dubai... That's right. Uh, du- uh, Dubai Parks and Resorts, I think, is the name of the company now. Mm-hmm. That's and he was saying, you know, they they did uh, market research on a variety of IPs, and they found one of the most popular one was the Smurfs. So yeah. <laughs> I think that Western culture translates just fine across the world. In fact, in my travels around the world, in Asia, in UAE, for example. I'm surprised, but mall culture is is huge. It, malls are safe. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things to do. They're air conditioned. You know, uh, Asia has a lot of rain. UAE is very hot. So, in fact, people love walking around and shopping and visiting. You know, and and going on rides and things like that. So, I think these lifestyles are perfectly suitable. And and there are many people around the world that that aspire to you know what we would think of as Western lifestyles. I want to jump on the IP question. Um, I didn't. I didn't know that about the Smurfs. That's that's pretty funny. Um, but obviously, Disney has its whole trove of of IP, mm-hmm. and they keep getting more with Star Wars and Universal just bought DreamWorks Animation, so they've got even more IP at their fingertips. Aside from Harry Potter, which has been like a magic cash cow. So, how how crucial is intellectual property for theme parks and for those who don't have really strong IP, and I'm thinking like SeaWorld here, because yeah. um, their IP was really like Shamu, I guess, for a while. And that's not what you want to put out front these days. Um, what does it mean for those who don't have it? Robert, you're, you're, already, you're already nodding along, so go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the advantage of an established IP is that it gives you a head start with the visitor. They know, they have a relationship with that IP already. I mean, one of the really powerful things about the Wizarding World of Harry Potter was the devotion that those millions of Harry Potter fans had worldwide uh, for that intellectual property and their desire to go there and be in Hogsmeade, to walk through Hogwarts Castle, to drink a butterbeer, uh, to put on house robes, to do all of those things that are perfect for the theme park experience. So it wasn't like something with Disneyland opening Pirates of the Caribbean in 1967, where you're coming in kind of cold, trying to warm people up to this IP they've never experienced before. Uh, it helps to drive bookings. It helps to drive uh, the decision that I'm definitely going to go there this year as opposed to whatever else you can do with your vacation dollar. Uh, so parks that don't have that IP don't come in with that big advantage. And you know, one of the things with SeaWorld, I think the two biggest things that they had were free beer when they were part of Anheuser-Busch. And then that iconic moment of when the trainer would launch off of the orca's nose you know, 30 feet into the air. Well, after you know, Dawn died in 2010, OSHA took that away, so they didn't have their iconic moment. They didn't have the free beer. And Harry Potter opened up the road at Universal, so everybody spent their non-Disney day on their Orlando vacations going to Universal instead of SeaWorld instead. And they were done back in 2010 before any of the issues about you know, animal captivity came into play. 
you know, their attendance peaked way back then, and it's been, uh, it hasn't risen to that level since. Uh, you're seeing the same thing with regional parks, is that Six Flags was kind of going away from that uh, D.C. property that they had for a while. Uh, but then as the movies came back into play and they made an investment in Justice League, they're seeing, wow, okay, we can take advantage of IP the same way that Disney and Universal do. Um, so right now, I think it's a little bit of challenge for parks like Cedar Fair. You know, how do you match that? They've got peanuts, but that's not really uh, particularly popular or even a viable IP with young people at this stage. Uh, you know, that movie reboot didn't particularly do anything for them. So, you know, it, it's a challenge that the have-nots are facing that, uh, you know, they have to find a way to compete with the immense advantage that Disney and Universal bring to the table with their huge, deep IP lineup. To add to that, um, more and because of the internet, more and more young people, young and old, have more connection and are able to be exposed to more IPs now. And so it's, I think the value of having an IP is, has increased because there's a greater likelihood that people are familiar with it. I think the days of being able to sort of slap some old wood on the walls and call it, you know, old Western town are, are gone. Although I've seen plenty of old Western towns in, in Asian and European theme parks. So thinking about other ways to make theme parks exciting, um, one thing we're seeing more and more of is embracing virtual reality as a way to spruce up older rides, give them new life. Six Flags has done this um, in an effort to um, you know, create new experiences at these parks. But is this, is this a gimmick? Is this basically dressing up leftovers um, into a new feast? Or is this a smart way to use technology and avoid spending millions of dollars? Martin... I think it's a fad. I, well, I think it's a it's a temporary way to add something new. Your audiences are looking for something new every single year. And people tend not to... Some people are devotees and they come to the park 20 times in a summer or more. But other people, they're not going to go back every year unless there's something new. So this is a relatively low, relatively cheap, low capital investment way to create a new experience. And it's sort of a virtual version of turning the Superman roller coaster into the Bizarro roller coaster. You kind of dress <laughs> it up, re repaint it, and give it a new name, and it's supposed to be a new ride, when really it's not a new ride. I have to admit, though, I haven't done one of the VR coasters yet. Have you, Robert? Yes, I have. Tell us about it. Um, <laughs> I I loved it, actually. I was really surprised. I went into it with a very high level of skepticism. I thought I was going to be green when I came off of that <laughs> thing, totally sick. But it turns out that it was actually more comfortable um, than I expected because uh, you don't have that disconnect that sometimes you have with filmed entertainment where the camera is moving but you're stationary. And that's a problem with a lot of IP unless it's just simply you're walking through an environment which frankly can be pretty boring. Uh, when you've got the motion of the uh, VR headset coordinated with the ride that you're on, it's, uh, it, they both reinforce each other and it's a really nice experience. That said, I think this is just kind of a baby step, uh, maybe some R&D towards augmented reality, which I think will be the real big deal for theme parks. I mean, when you think about it, their strength is the physical environment that they're creating, all those big, richly themed lands that you can't visit anywhere else. 
virtual reality kind of throws that away in favor of uh, you know filmed entertainment that you can see at home. But if you can have the best of both worlds, a little bit of that filmed entertainment it augmenting and enhancing the physical reality, that can be a game changer for them. But they're going to have to learn how to manage you know, the headsets and all of the operational challenges that they're fighting through with VR uh, in order to do something really exciting with augmented reality down the, down the line. Yeah. Um, let's stay on technology for a minute. And I want to talk about the billion dollars that Disney spent developing My Magic Plus, which, I mean, which is a system that exists, but then in Orlando, it, it really is tied to um, the wristband, which is, of course, my magic, a magic band. Um, that's not a piece that they're using in California, which I discovered when I went to California and brought my magic band and was very disappointed. <laughs> um, they didn't roll it out in China. They said people can just do the same thing on their phones. Um, so was it, would you call it a, a misguided experiment? Um, should they have been spending some of that money on like developing new rides? Uh, or or was it a really smart way to more than anything personalize, customize, track, uh, track guests? Um, Martin. Well, I I think that if they were doing the same analysis today, they probably wouldn't have made the same decision. That's my opinion. Uh, clearly, somebody doing the analysis when the decision was made, you know, did the cash flows and found net present value was greater than zero. So I, I can't believe that it's a failure. It's certainly a plus experience than taking out your, you take out your phone at Starbucks and pay for your coffee. So it's definitely a better experience than that, I think, because it's, it's, it's your, you pay for things, it's your hotel room key. And of course, Cinderella knows your name uh, and you get a message leaving, um, leaving, uh, it's a small world. But I imagine that, I mean, there must be a reason that they're not spreading it out over the other parks. Yeah. You have any insight on that, Robert? Yeah, I think one of the things to keep in mind with uh, the whole My Magic Plus uh, development was that a lot of it was just back-end integration. They were getting a whole bunch of disparate systems to work together and uh, encountering all of the scale problems that you encounter once you're trying to get a bunch of systems to talk to each other, work together for literally, you know, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of, of potential guests that that system has to uh, accommodate. I mean, the scale issues that they faced with that were pretty daunting. So yeah, I can see where you're talking about a billion dollar price tag for that type of uh, system upgrade. Uh, now, should they have gone with the magic bands or just waited for cell phone technology to, to catch up with, uh, you know, NFC chips and all of that sort of thing. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it looks like they're saying we're going to go with cell phones at other parks outside of Disney World. But as Martin said, I mean, it is a plus experience to have that thing that's, you know, waterproof on your wrist that you don't have to pull your cell phone out. You can just leave the cell phone. You don't have to worry about losing it. If you lose the magic band, well, okay, you spend another 15 bucks for one Plus as opposed to 600 it. bucks for a new iPhone. Yeah. Um, but is that plus experience worth the investment that they made to develop it? Yeah, I don't know. But Disney's got a really powerful back end now with some really nice interactive capabilities. So they've built a really sweet foundation. So I don't think we can judge it. You know, just like you can't judge 
a new development based on the slabs that are poured, you have to look at the building you put onto that foundation. And Disney hasn't built that yet. So we have to see what they do with that before we can make a final determination about My Magic Plus. Yeah. And I think another, uh, to, just to add, we also don't know what kind of data they're gathering based mm-hmm. on the Magic Bands, which may be... Also. Well, yeah, I, but I think it's, I mean, I've often wondered about theme park, you know, crowd movement, you know, uh, tracking and mapping and knowing where people go after the 3 p.m. parade. So they have that kind of information, which I bet could be worth its weight in gold. Right, totally. Yeah. So speaking of, you know, more positive investments, we were just talking about um, Harry Potter World um, in Florida. Um, I think two different worlds that have been doing quite well. Um, and another one just opened in California. We have hotels and a water park opening in Orlando and plus a whole patch of land that we still don't know what's going on there. Meanwhile, uh, Disney is building its Avatar land and has Star Wars and Toy Story areas under construction. So what does all this building boon mean for both parts? parks and, of course, attendees? Well, I think you're going to see, uh, you know, this is going to help drive attendance. The question is, are the parks going to price it too aggressively that that begins to undercut the increase in attendance? And there's an argument to be made that it's better off to have fewer people in the park, but they're spending way more money, so they ultimately your money ahead with lower expenses. And uh, so we'll see how aggressively Disney decides that it can price tickets and vacations at Walt Disney World, given the number of people that they expect to come in with Avatar and Toy Story and Star Wars. Frankly, I don't think they can be particularly aggressive pricing Avatar because they that franchise doesn't have the devoted fan base that Star Wars does. Um, I think the Avatar land that they're building, I've seen the blueprints. I've seen a lot of photos from behind the construction walls that have been leaked to me. I think it's going to be spectacular. I think it's going to have amazingly positive word of mouth once it opens, but not until it opens and people see what it is because there's a lot of skepticism about the franchise. Now, with Star Wars, I think Disney can be as aggressive as it wants with that. That's got the built-in fan base. That's a Potter-level experience that they're going to be creating. So I'm looking for them to be very aggressive with that. But it's going to be it's going to come down to math. I mean, um, if they wanted to set a record and bring you know 20 million people into all of the Disney World theme parks every year, you know, they could price and, and achieve that. But that might not necessarily be the best thing for the bottom line. So I don't know where the specific attendance numbers are going to come out. But I know they've got some pretty powerful tools to drive a lot of earnings for the company with what they're doing down at Disney World. Is this, Martin, you think this is the the best way for them to like keep excitement alive and keep developing new audiences? I, I, I think so. They they spent all that money on Lucasfilm and, and Marvel, so they have to milk it. They have they when you when you make those purchases, you have to have an expected cash flow to come in to pay for it, to, to you know, to justify it. Um I wanted to add a wrinkle to what Robert said, which is that I think that one of the impacts of built of all this building is that, and I could be completely wrong, but I think it's possible that maybe some of the softness in attendance could be some visitors holding back and yeah, waiting, yeah. waiting for some of this stuff to get finished. My understanding is that Hollywood Studios is basically just a construct, construction zone now yeah, that right. you have to pay admission for. So <laughs> I think that maybe 
some people are holding back and that might be having an impact. That's why they're putting, uh, you know, Sor the new version of Soren and the new, um, the new version, the new ride for Frozen, um, Frozen Forever After. I think those are part of those things are to keep crowds coming in during the, this sort of time when they're doing all this construction. Yeah, we absolutely saw that with Universal Orlando in the two years before the Wizarding World of Harry Potter opened. Um, their attendance just tanked for two years, and then it all came back, and then some in 2010 when they debuted. So Martin's right. There, I mean, people have the internet; they know what's coming. They, <laughs> that uh, they do. One of the biggest questions we get is when does Star Wars Land open? I mean, because what is the people answer? People don't want to go the summer before Star Wars Land yeah. open. They want to go the summer that it is open. Have they? They haven't said when it's opening yet, have they? No, they haven't announced anything on Star Wars Land at this point. But they're saying next summer for Avatar. Okay. Um, you mentioned SeaWorld, and um, you know, I just feel like they haven't had a really good day in several years. Um, no, Don, like you about six. <laughs> about six. Um, and and of course, I think the the attention and for the last three years has been on the death of the trainer Don Brancho, um, the the documentary that came after that Blackfish, and just like the unrelenting um, negative press and pressure about the their treatment mm -hmm. of animals in captivity, specifically orcas, um, and they've made changes to some of the practices that were were most um, controversial. But of course, they're not really even though they're not going to breed killer whales anymore in captivity, they are also not releasing them into, into the sea or sea sanctuaries. Um, Robert, you know, you said that this problem goes back way before blackfish. Right. So what do you have like a solution? Do you know, you have any thoughts on what they can do to regain their footing and, and really change the tide? Yeah, this has been some of the most disappointing theme park management I have seen in the time that I've covered stuff. Um, and keep in mind that the parks, uh, you know, they used to be part of Anheuser-Busch, and that was really, those were the golden years for SeaWorld. That was the best owner they've ever had. And they had a series of owners before that. Uh, they were owned by a textbook company at one point. Hardcore Brace Javanovich, right? Yeah. yeah. Weird. That, that didn't fit at all. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, uh, AB was a great owner for them, but when InBev took over and they decided we don't want to be in the parks business anymore, they ended up with Blackstone, which loaded them up with a lot of debt in almost a Donald Trump style, you know, uh, you know tax avoidance scheme. Uh, but it really left them at a capital disadvantage. I mean, this is a capital intensive business. And SeaWorld always had aspirations of competing with Disney. They always saw themselves on the same level, maybe even a little bit above Universal. But those two companies are part of multi-billion dollar corporations with almost bottomless access to capital and to IP. SeaWorld on its own now, now that it's been IPO'd off of, uh, um, off of Blackstone, they're not part of a big, deep-pocketed corporation. They were saddled with a lot of debt by Blackstone. They don't have the access to the capital necessary to build $100 million-plus attractions like Disney and Universal do. So they've slid down to the level of uh, the regional amusement parts uh, in terms of capital investment. So, and, and their attendance is, is regressing to that level as well. So creatively, they have to decide, okay, are we happy being at that level? Because if they want to step up and compete with Disney and Universal again, 
frankly, they're going to have to get acquired by somebody. They're going to have to be part of a bigger company. They're going to have to come up with some type of IP strategy, whether it's rebranding around the Sea Rescue thing that's their show right now or uh, trying to acquire some other type of animal-friendly IP. Uh, but in, unless they get an acquisition, unless they're a target of an acquisition, I really think that, you know, you're looking at they're the newest regional park. And um, they're just going to have to be satisfied with that at that point. You're, you're a management guy, Martin. <laughs> How do you, you know, manage the, out of this? I, that's a, the best analyst analysis I've ever heard. I think if I had a dime for every incorrect prediction I've made about SeaWorld, I, I'd be, well, I, I thought that the, first, I didn't think Blackfish was going to get traction, but in fact, the internet helped it get traction in a way because animal rights activists have been protesting SeaWorld's holding orcas for, for decades, yeah. um, but it did get traction. And then I thought that I thought that SeaWorld announcing the end of their breeding program, I thought that was a, I mean, it must have been a huge psychological barrier for that company to go through because they had always pretty much stonewalled any criticism on that front. Yeah. And when they were implicitly recognizing or implicitly admitting that, well, this shouldn't go on. I thought that, oh, mom and pop, you know, mom and pop kettle can now go to SeaWorld with a, with a clear conscience because they know that, well, this is it, that, you know, they're not going to be breeding, but I, I was wrong. And I think, I think Robert hit the nail on the head. They're just not, they're not the same company that they were. They don't have this giant corporation basically holding them up anymore, which is a shame because these have always been beautiful parks that the Bush Gardens parks, the SeaWorld parks, some yeah. of the best landscaping I've ever seen in the theme park world, some of the best management, some of the cleanest parks, just great atmosphere. And as he says, it's kind of sliding down. Yeah. Uh, Martin used a great word, which was stonewalling. I mean, when the dot, when, when Blackfish came out, uh, you know, there was, there was so much to criticize about that movie. I mean, there's so much in there that was just blankly wrong, just, you know, misleading editing. And SeaWorld eventually came up with this really compelling blow by blow refutation of the film six months after it came out and they put it into a PDF that they buried on their website. And otherwise they just did kind of these passive aggressive things about, yeah, we're really good to our animals, but there was nothing about attractions. There was nothing about, here's the fun that you could come have at SeaWorld. There was nothing about, here are the great rides, here are the great shows. They just went into a shell and just didn't respond. They weren't proactive. They weren't, um, they weren't aggressive with their marketing. And at the same time, the PETA people were just cranking out everything they possibly could to try and gin up a controversy here. Um, so as, as Martin was alluding to, when they decided, okay, we're not going to do breeding anymore, yeah, that wasn't ever going to stop the PETA people because they've been fundraising off of SeaWorld forever. They're never going to give this up until SeaWorld goes out of business. But what it did do is really tick off the fans who'd stuck by them for years, defending them when SeaWorld wouldn't defend them. And now a lot of them have just washed their hands at it. So they didn't pick up any new audience, but they burned away their old one. And you know that's a real management problem for the company that they're going to have to face. 
Well, I'm sure both of you have something to say about whether or not there's any up and comers um, in the theme park industry, any disruptors. Is there room for something brand new? And it, it sounds like there could be, but what, what, what are both of your thoughts? I, I don't know. I was thinking of Rocky Mountain construction in terms of the roller coaster industry. Um, these guys, uh, well, actually, the the designer um, Alan Schilke, he's been around for a long time. He worked for Arrow Development. Um, unfortunately, Arrow went bankrupt um, building uh, X at Six Flags Magic Mountain uh, because they couldn't get the project done on time. And so, but Arrow was eventually purchased by another company, SNS. Um, but Alan Schilke, sort of uh, like a phoenix, uh, and he and we're talking about somebody, a very talented young designer really innovative and x remains that that model coaster remains incredibly innovative um the first of the 4d coasters so he ends up kind of pops up like a phoenix at this company rocky mountain construction that i had never heard of apparently they'd done some some like building work and that kind of thing and he figures out how to take an old wooden coaster and put some special new track on it and reinforce everything and make these incredibly awesome new both wooden and steel coasters. And now the parks are getting in line to, to build them. And he's really he's taken away some of the bigger, bigger coaster projects away from sort of the traditional competitors. So I, I would give my props to them because they're really uh, they've shaken things up a bit. That's interesting. So not necessarily like a theme park operator who can come in and and shake things up, but but someone who actually services the theme park industry. Yeah, this is the this is the kind of thing that I I'm not I don't know who the next Uber of the theme park industry <laughs> is. Yeah. I I'd mentioned augmented reality before, and I think that has the potential to uh, bring a lot of disruption to theme parks. Uh, one of the IPs that Universal has now is Nintendo, and they haven't announced what they're going to do with it. But if you think about Universal, Nintendo, augmented reality, uh, a lot of fans start smiling and anticipating something absolutely wonderful. But one of the disruptions I'm looking at right now is what's happening in Dubai. And we had uh, referenced that earlier. Uh, Dubai Parks and Resorts, it's a free resort. Uh, it's a three-park resort. There's that Motion Gate Park, a Bollywood-themed park that they're developing, and a Legoland that they're all opening later this year. And the disruption there is, is with that, with the IMG Worlds of Adventure that just opened in Abu Dhabi and the Ferrari World, a new Six Flags coming at Dubai within a couple of years, uh, can Dubai position itself as a real alternative to Florida for the European theme park market that's looking to go to a nice, you know, warm, sunny destination outside of Europe for its vacation. And I think there's some real potential there that, um, you know, obviously that's what people in the UAE want to do, is that they want to become the Orlando of the Middle East. And um, that's always been a little far-fetched. But with the capital they're putting on the ground right now, with the IP that they have and the appeal that it would have, to European audiences, I think they'd have the potential to be very disruptive to the uh, uh, to the Florida market in terms of uh, how their ability to appeal to people in Europe. Um, so, my last question is: I'm I'm an adult woman without children, still go to theme parks, still love them. Dan here, we just discovered that he and I are both uh, a week apart from each other going from New York to Epcot at Can't the end, at the end of the month. Soren, I'm super psyched. Um, we're both going to Epcot for the Food and Wine Festival, which is obviously mm. an adult-centric 
event. Um, you mentioned Robert um, affluent, more affluent guests as as being mm-hmm. like a new area of development. But are there other? Um, do you see that there are other other markets or other demographics who um, Disney Universal everybody is really trying to go after or trying to develop in order to broaden their you know broaden their source base? Yeah, at this point, Disney Universal they're going after everyone. I mean, they want to get uh, they want to get uh, you know young they want to get millennials. They want to get uh, Gen X parents. They want to get baby boomers on nostalgia. They want to get uh, you know. Uh, 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 older senior visitors uh, with multi-generation uh, family reunions. Uh, they're looking at getting people who want water parks, people who want to play golf, people who want to just sit around and do tequila tastings. I mean, um, they've got a place where you can do that in Epcot too. Uh, so they're really developing as many products as they can physically move to market to try and appeal to all. I mean, they're, they're mass market companies at this point. They don't want you to see a theme park as a niche, but as kind of a a vessel or a medium for a variety of niches within it. And then you can come find your niche within everything that we have available at Universal Orlando or the Walt Disney World Resort. That's their message to the marketplace at this stage. So pretty much whatever you want to do, uh, they're going to do their best to give you that opportunity. Martin, I'll give you the last word on this. Well, just I'll tell you, Orlando has become a great food city. And I think that's That definitely is indicative of what's happening, what's happened to Orlando. Just the the amazing food and drink experiences you can have throughout Orlando now at any of the resorts. And it's there's always there are always new new things being introduced and and I guess merchandising and, and food and drink. It's it's a it's a consumer's paradise, really. It always has been, and now there's just there's no uh well, there, there's no trying, there's no disguising it anymore. Well, guys, I, I could talk about this all day, but um, I think we've covered <laughs> a lot of ground. And thank you so much. This has been a really great conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having us.